You're tuned in to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where I speak with UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I'm joined by Kevin Block, who's PhD candidate in the Department of Rhetoric and an aspiring architectural historian and theorist. So uh, welcome, Kevin. Thank you. You're definitely the first person I've had from any of those fields. So uh, we would really appreciate it if you would just start by telling us a little bit about what each of those things mean, especially rhetoric and architectural historian. Okay. Defining the rhetoric department might be one of the more difficult questions um, that I'll probably have to answer this entire show. <laughs> but it is a department that is inherently multidisciplinary. And in the undergraduate program, it focuses on the study of discourse and argumentation, as well as the institutional or symbolic dimensions of discourse. So that could be how narrative works different than images in terms of making a particular appeal. Could this also just be like the way you choose the words you want to represent what you're saying with like, sure. you know, that I, I mean, I literally don't know anything about rhetoric, but that's my sense of it. It's like sort of the words you choose to express yourself. Yeah, definitely. And this is a very long, a historically rich discipline that spans from classical antiquity to the modern era. I've taught both classical theory of rhetoric and modern theories of rhetoric in the rhetoric department. And the classical course goes from Homer and Plato and Aristotle to Cicero and Augustine. And this is the classical paradigm of rhetorical study that's about the appropriate selection of certain modes of argumentation for particular audiences. And then in the modern course, it includes, you know, the entire spectrum of social theory from Marx to post-structuralists like Foucault and Derrida to media theorists. So it's very eclectic. So when you said names like Homer and Plato, you know, I'm thinking of philosophers. So is there this intersection between philosophy and rhetoric then? There must be. Yes, Yes. So there's a ongoing debate between philosophy and rhetoric in antiquity. And then in the mod, in the more contemporary period, there's a there's within the situating rhetoric, there's a debate between continental theory and analytic philosophy. And the rhetoric department, at least at Berkeley, has housed scholars who are more interested in what's traditionally understood as continental theory. And that's that includes a lot of social theorists and post-structuralists, um, Marxists. That's, yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, okay. And and choosing an argument, I mean, it seems like, maybe it's just me, but it seems like everything that I hear about now seems very relevant to today's, like, you know, sociopolitical atmosphere. But it seems like that, in particular, choosing the way that you speak and make an argument as a scientist who's thinking about, uh, you know, science today, and we're having this debate, like, what, how do we tell the public what we want to say? What's the best way to make the argument we want to make? So that sounds like it's something that a field that's still very, very relevant. Yeah, I just listened to an interview with George Lakoff, who's in the linguistics department, and he's the theorist of frames. And 
at in this interview, he was talking about basically the necessity of scientists to stop couching arguments in objectivity and start to appeal to emotions more. This is a you know yeah it, no I'll have to it, listen to that that's a that's yeah that's a debate right. I've had I don't know where I stand on it so uh, yeah no, this was about um, the human penchant to remember more vividly emotional appeals than arguments that are overly dependent on in 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 the classical term logos or or reason so it's certainly relevant to today and that's part of part of my research is motivated by these issues of populist disdain for expert knowledge particularly with respect to architecture and then also and this is kind of getting ahead maybe but also there's a huge critique of expertise and expert knowledge from behavioral sciences, from people like Daniel Kahneman in Thinking Fast and Slow, that's about the fallibility of human decision-making and the fallibility especially of experts. And this has kind of motivated a suspicion that expert judgment is less reliable than we, than we might hope. Well, so very, very relevant to today, then, I would say. So, I mean, yeah, you, you said the word architecture. We mentioned it at the beginning, but I guess, can you give us a sense of how rhetoric and this argumentation actually bridges the gap yeah, to sure. uh, architecture? Please. Should I just start? Yeah, just to start. Give okay, it. so <laughs> the connection with architecture is is really premised on the... Uh, on my historical interest in architectural professionalism in the United States and the moment in the 19th century when architects distanced themselves from the building tradition and the artisanal tradition, which is premised on craft knowledge and the transmission of knowledge from master to disciple, the, the transition from that model into formal education. And these are all, you know, the, in the long trajectory of this period, it's about the elevation of the architect as a distinguished figure in comparison to builders. That elevation is premised on all these different hierarchies of mental versus manual labor, hierarchies based on gender even or ethnicity, and the rhetorical study of architects and architecture is relevant because, you know, professional architects make a claim through journals, through publications, in their work about their prestige and, their, and more than just their prestige, their capacities as experts. So my study is historically based, but the rhetorical education has kind of sensitized me to the, to the different tropes or figures, figures of speech or narratives that this particular community, the architectural community in the United States in the, in the latter half of the 19th century used to, to, to make their claim to professional standing. I'll give one example maybe, which in my period, the idea of the organism the organismic becomes especially important to architects. And you can think of probably 
the most famous or only architect, American architect that people know, and that's Frank Lloyd Wright. And there's an idea that the idea of making choices among a variety of sources, architectural sources, that's called eclecticism in architecture. And one of the things that the organic metaphor does through the idea of natural selection is that the architect no longer has to consciously choose. He can just say the kind of, you know, in a particular locale for a particular typology, that's like a home or a tall office building or a court. The building emerges from the ground like an organism emerges from its soil. And thus, the architect abdicates responsibility. In a, you could make that reading. But in any event, it's a justification for a particular style. And that all comes through that metaphor that's so deeply embedded in architectural thinking and in the rhetoric of architecture in that period. So when you say that period, you definitely mean the second half of the 19th century, right? So Darwin must have played somewhat of a role in that, or at least uh, his contemporaries, because you talk about <laughs> organisms and natural selection, and these are things that I think about first coming to public knowledge back then. Yeah. Architects are, it's very, I mean, I'm very interested. Part of my fascination with architectural history stems from the complexity of the subject matter and also the complexity of architects bringing other discourses or other disciplines into their discipline. So something like evolution, which just kind of permeated, that idea just permeated late 19th century thought. You have to, you, you can't look for it directly because architects maybe in that period are not the most close readers of evolutionary theory but it starts to influence general habits of practice. And then my job as an architectural historian is to try to identify those moments when an architect relies on an evolutionary idea, maybe not in its pristine, accurate form. Maybe it's a significant divergence from how an evolutionary scientist understands evolution, but nevertheless, nevertheless, to help explain the influence of those ideas on architectural practice. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so if you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Graduates here on Calix 90.7 FM. My name is Tesla. Today, I'm joined by Kevin Block in the Department of Rhetoric, but also talking about architecture and history. So maybe we should step back a little bit further. Uh, we do share an alma mater, What? but what was your undergraduate degree in? My undergraduate degree was in English and American studies, but I, when I was in the English department, I never really concentrated on literature as much as I concentrated on social theory. And the English department at Princeton was completely amenable to my interests. Did they have, do they have an architecture department? I don't remember. Yeah, they have a great one. They have, okay. a, they have a great but school you, of architecture. You came in through this other avenue then. I had always been interested in architecture growing up because both my parents are in that community. My father's an architect. My mother worked for DuPont as on the engineering side as a technical specialist in glass. And she worked with lots of architects and engineers. And it was always kind of around me. I, I think as an undergrad, I 
for reasons not completely conscious, I've diverged from going into architecture. I always loved reading and I always loved history. And when I got to the English department there, I discovered that that was a place on that campus where um, a lot of interesting social theory w was being read, and I kind of clung to that. And then the American Studies was another kind of interesting interdisciplinary program, much like the rhetoric department, that allowed me to pursue these different research interests in a variety of ways. So did you do any research projects at Princeton as an undergraduate? I, I did the thesis, which every Princeton undergraduate has to I, do. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I really enjoyed the process. That was my first opportunity to do substantial independent research. And, okay. And and that probably that the experience probably led me to graduate school. Do you want to tell us what your topic was or Sure. My topic was <laughs> um I kind of gave a history it's not related it's okay. in any direct way to my graduate studies, but the topic was the very short life of biography departments in American universities. So the interesting idea there was that you would read books about the lives of others, and that constituted a legitimate field of, of study, which by the 1940s was was no longer legitimate, and, and, and thus these departments, there's really only two, one at Carleton College and one at Dartmouth. And I, I found the archive of these departments, so I, I wrote that history. So if your thesis wasn't on architecture or rhetoric, uh, what brought you here to Berkeley? Well, what brought me here to Berkeley was... <laughs> it's okay to say the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the... I, I, the combination of re the rhetoric department here and also the program in architectural history, which is in the College of Environmental Design, was really strong because it's a very strong architectural history program and rhetoric is a very strong theory program. And when I got here, it became evident that both sides were interested in having me kind of bounce back and forth and they really supported me doing so. Um, and then also just being being in the Bay Area, being in a large on a large campus like Berkeley, I thought was really important in terms of making this unusual combination work. So, can you tell us what your research is on now that you're here? Yes. So, my dissertation is entitled "Drawn Apart: Abstraction and the Formation of Architectural Expertise in Postbellum New York." So that's roughly you know, 1865 until 1915. It's a long title, as most most dissertations are, but the general idea is I'm, I'm tracking the formation of this idea of architectural expertise in a period in which architecture enters the university. I'm really interested in how that institutional setting affected the study of architecture. And then there are all these other kind of contextual factors that impact architectural expertise, like the, the growth of cities. And so my research is centered on New York City in a period in which New York City really becomes the metropolis that we know it today. And it's diverse and it becomes a cultural capital and it becomes home to universities like Columbia University and 
all of those facets impact the story I'm trying to tell in the dissertation. So I was going to ask why you chose New York, but I guess that kind of answers it, right? It's not just because we think of all those really tall buildings there and all that old architecture. Right. I mean, the topic of expertise is very closely related to the topic of elites and elitism. And they're not the same, but they really are inextricable. And so part of what I'm doing is 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 seeing how architecture, which was based for the antebellum period in the artisanal tradition in the United States and was practiced maybe by aspiring mechanics. Now there were there were also these unusual foreign trained you know genteel architects that dotted the landscape but they were mostly few and far between um, these were figures like Benjamin Latrobe or in my period someone like Richard Morris Hunt these were people who went to Europe to receive their training but in the latter half of the 19th century you get architecture schools in American universities and you get aspiring architects staying home in places like Columbia University in New York, and they become members of this elite class. So how do you actually study something like this? Are these buildings still around? Can you go and see them in person? Some of them. I'm not, you know, my focus is mainly the study of architects as opposed to the study of buildings. But to study architects, you have to also study the buildings that are the center, really, of their practice, at least in this period. Um, and so I study the professionalization movement through the journals that professional architects used to coordinate themselves. I also I do study the actual schools, the buildings. So I, I just wrote a chapter on the Avery Avery Hall and the Avery Library at Columbia. And this is how, and that, that chapter is about how this physical space uh, helped in the formation of a particular type of subject, the architect. And there I have to kind of, I have to go into the archives and look at the drawings and see how the layout of the building was integrated into an entire pedagogical theory on how to form an architect. So there's got to be some pretty heavy library digging going on. A lot here. of library digging, which is fun. You yeah. know, and, and um, you know, I'm just thinking now, there aren't many discoveries necessarily. I'm kind of in the archives looking f more for the texture of the period. Um, there are really no red herrings, but when I was at the archive in New one of the archives in New York, I was looking at the drawings for this building and noticed that there were these book lifts. This was the early, an early incorporation of electrical dumb waiters into the building, into the shafts of the building. And that was to help circulate the library materials throughout the school. And this was a kind of interesting idea that architects would learn from books and that the building would help make these 
books, these sources available to them. And, you know, you could see that in the plans of the building, this very small book lift added here. And, I, and you know, I haven't yet been able to track exactly what what type of lift was probably a, an electrical dumbwaiter that the Otis Corporation, that's the big elevator corporation, manufactured. But that was that was a kind of archival discovery. Yeah, and it sounds like it's sort of a cyclical process where you get this response between, you know, learning in these books and the architects and the building itself, and it goes and informs the next iteration yeah. of the building. And it's you know, a back and forth between buildings and architects. Yeah. So I have to ask, are you from the Northeast originally? I am. Yeah. Okay. Well, because, you know, you're talking about the, you went to school in the East, talking about New York. Yeah. It sounds like it, but I was yeah, just I'm, I'm from Philadelphia originally. And, you know, sometimes I think to myself, I came out to Berkeley. I'm studying New York. Why did I make that choice? But <laughs> it's actually been fine. You know, I, I, I've spent a lot of research period over the summers back on the East Coast. And then when I'm in Berkeley, I'm in writing mode or teaching mode. And I'm reading a lot of secondary sources to understand the research. And when I'm in research mode, I'm just, you know, frenetically taking images of the archival material and then sorting through them once I'm back here. So do you have any, uh, you know, big reveals in terms of your findings that you want to tell us here? Um, you have a whole title, so I have a feeling yeah. you must uh, be pretty far along in the dissertation. Yeah, the the trajectory is 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 kind of I'm trying to chart a period that I think of as the liberal phase of architectural expertise. That's a very complicated term, liberal. But the idea is what came before the scientific ideal in architectural expertise. That that's in the modernist movement thought of as new objectivity or objectivity. And this has appeared when in the 19 teens and 20s and 30s and, and throughout really the modernist period, architects wanted to think of themselves as scientists. And they built, they built scientifically or they researched architecture in supposedly scientific ways. But before that, we haven't really had a good understanding of what organized architectural professionalism and 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 also the kind of un architectural thinking more broadly my contention is that it, the real key is to understand how they thought of liberality and liberalism and this goes back to to choice that as you're saying how, how you, this is a rhetorical problematic how you choose different sources and how that process of choice constitutes creativity. And so that's, again, the problem of eclecticism. The modernists hated eclecticism because they thought it was overwhelming, it was chaotic, or it was anarchic. You could choose in any number of ways, and it was just, it was chaos. But um, the pedagogues that tried to institute architectural education had to think of methods to organize that process. And my dissertation is about how they did that in a way that was different from laymen, that was um, legitimate in the university. So scientists and 
humanists said, oh, okay, architecture is appropriate within academia. That wasn't always the case because it was tinged with manual labor and mm. that's not what we're supposed to be doing in the university. Of course, it's the same problem the scientists encountered, right? The laboratory is the place of labor and theory is what some scientists at least would say that, that they're trying to produce. But the scientists have done a very good job, at least maybe until now, balancing the labor of science and the kind of theoretical work involved in science and architect architecture faces the same kind of problem. Well, I never would have thought when I saw, you know, your blurb about architecture in 19th century New York that it would have so much relevance to things people are talking about every day. It's it's kind of astounding. So good on you for that. And... Yeah, I mean, not to bring it necessarily, it doesn't necessarily have direct relevance to the the present, in, but... I think it does. <laughs> you know, infrastructure is a hot topic, and architects all of a sudden are having to think about their standing as experts, both within, in a political context that both is skeptical of their expertise and yet also wants to employ them to build walls or bridges or buildings, et cetera. Yeah. And even going beyond that, the fact that you had to say that liberal is sort of a complicated term. I mean, that phrase in any other program that you might hear on the radio today would be about something that's very current. So mm -hmm. uh, I think that's pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you're involved in rhetoric. You have this. You're involved in the architecture department, and you are also um, a global urban humanities fellow. Correct. Correct. So can you tell us what that program is? Yeah, Global Urban Humanities is a Mellon Foundation initiative that's trying to encourage new ways to think and teach the city, understanding that urbanization is a major issue around the world and that we need to develop scholarship and research methods that are collaborative and interdisciplinary so that we can better understand cities. And I, my research is not directly related necessarily to cities per se, but it is related to a community, a professional community, architecture, that is is very intimately related to the design of cities. Okay, well, we're just about out of time here on The Graduates. I definitely want to give you a chance to, um, you know, say anything you want to say. So is there anything you really wanted to say on the radio Because besides obscenities? Because now is your chance. No, I think that's about it. So... But you don't want me to ask you and have it be a rhetorical question, do you? Get it? That was a joke. <laughs> I don't even know. I've Wait, never... Okay, so the question was, is there anything else I want to add? Yeah. No, I was just joking about the rhetorical part. But... Um, no, I mean... I, I mean, you've done a great job explaining it. I will then ask, where did this phrase, a rhetorical question, even come from? I didn't even put it together. You said rhetoric, 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 and then you were like, and then rhetorical. And I was like, oh, that that's in the same class of words. That means the same thing, pretty much, huh? A rhetorical question. I don't know the origins of it, but... Um, but it's the same. It is rhetoric, right? The, they're connected. All questions are rhetorical, I suppose, <laughs> would, would be the rhetorician's response. Awesome. To... <laughs> 
do that. Those are epic last words. So I think we can leave it with that. Uh, All questions are rhetorical. You've been listening to The Graduates here on KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson. And today I've been joined by Kevin Block, Ph.D. candidate in the Department of Rhetoric and uh, aspiring architectural historian and theorist. He's been telling us about his path from English and American studies to rhetoric here at Berkeley and then what that means and also his work on um, architecture, but also the history of being an architect and particularly in New York City and uh, just how the discipline has changed and a really interesting perspective on something that I literally had not thought about until you brought it up. So I think that's one of the beauty, one of the beauties of the show, but also of research in general is that you can look at a topic that seems so far away from what you do in your day to day. And then it turns out that it has immediate, um, you know, relevance to everything around you. So <laughs> thanks for showing us Thank that, you. Kevin. Yeah. And we'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Stay tuned. You're listening to KALX Berkeley.